Hello, listeners. My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. There is so much that I think about whenever I read about Job in the Bible. The book of Job starts out explaining what a great person he was. The first verse of Job describes him as a blameless man of complete integrity who feared God and stayed away from evil. But as all of you know well, one day, out of nowhere, for Job, all of this disappears in a second. It's hard to understand all the hardships that came upon Job, a man who feared God and stayed away from evil. When you look at Job chapter 1, verse 6, God asks Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answers the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. That's when God replies in Job chapter 1, verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Can you feel the trust that God had in Job as he told none other than Satan about how great a man Job was? Satan envies the trust that God has in Job and says to him that Job has a good reason to fear God because he has always protected him, his family, and his home. God made Job prosper in everything he does, making him very rich. Satan suggests that if God takes away everything that Job has, that he will curse God to his face. As we know, God agrees with Satan and puts Job to the test. With God's permission, Satan takes all of Job's possessions and even his children. However, even after losing everything he had, Job confessed, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. After failing at his first attempt to test Job, Satan decides to go after Job's health, believing that Job will curse God this way. God gives Satan permission to test Job with his health. So, with permission from God, Satan struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job itched so much that he scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. As Job's wife looks upon Job, she asks him if he is still trying to maintain his integrity and tells him to curse God and die. Even after losing all his possessions, children, and now his health, and after listening to his wife telling him to curse God, Job tells his wife in Job chapter 2 verse 10 that she is talking like a foolish woman. He says that we should not only accept the good things from God, but also accept the bad. When I see this endless faith and trust that Job has in God, I begin to envy the faith that Job had in God. It is because Job was this kind of man that God said there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. 
God knew the faith that Job had in him and trusted him very much. That is why he did not worry about leaving Job in Satan's hands. God had full faith in Job. After reading about a person like Job, I began to think about how much faith God has in a person like me. I thought about how much confidence God has in me. If Satan went to God wanting to test someone like me, what would God tell Satan? Would God have been as confident in me as he was in Job? I think that God would have hesitated, not giving an answer to Satan, if he had no confidence. How about all of you?
Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller. Today's topic is, Who is the Spirit? Based on John chapter 14, verses 16 through 26. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy. The scripture reading this morning comes from John's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 16 through 26. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. This is the word of the Lord. What we're going to be doing is looking at what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. My impression is that there's an awful lot of churches in the world that talk about nothing but spiritual experience. And there's an awful lot of churches that are just absolutely afraid of this subject and just want to talk about doctrine. But I think the remedy for that imbalance is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Because the deeper you get into it, the more you realize that spirit and truth go together. Let's take a look at what this great passage tells us about who the Holy Spirit is, what he does, and then how you can receive what he gives. Who he is, what he does, how you can receive what he gives. First, who is he? Who is the Holy Spirit? And by the way, I already gave you a bit of an answer by the choice of my pronoun. The Holy Spirit is a personal, is the personal divine resident of the Christian's heart. The Holy Spirit is the personal divine resident of the Christian's heart. First of all, personal. Have you noticed that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit not as it, not as an energy or as a force, but as he? The world cannot accept him, he, a person. In Ephesians 4.30, the Holy Spirit is said to be grieved. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 10.29, it says you can outrage the Holy Spirit. In Romans 15, it says the Holy Spirit loves. So he loves, he's grieved, he's, uh, he's outraged. An impersonal force cannot feel those feelings. That's a person. But he's not only a person, he's God. So, for example, right up here it says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor. But Jesus says he's another counselor. I'm a counselor, he's another one. Now, there's two ways, there's two Greek words that could be used to talk about another. The one Greek word for another is hetero, which means, actually, opposed or different to the former. The other Greek word that could be used is alos, which means just like the former. Now, you've got to realize what Jesus is saying here, because Jesus made some enormous claims about himself. Jesus said there's a place in John 8 where he says, before Abraham was, I am. He takes the divine name that God gave to Moses in the burning bush. Jesus says, it's me, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. 
Uh, Jesus claims to forgive all sins. You know what that means? When he says, I can forgive all sins, that means all sins are against me because you can only forgive the sins that are against you. Jesus says he's going to judge the world. So Jesus is constantly saying, I am equal to God. And now he has the audacity to come along and say, I'm sending you someone who's just like me. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is God. And what we are into right now is the dizzying doctrine of the Trinity. Verse 2 of this chapter, Jesus is all about saying, I'm going away. I'm going away. Then here says in verse 16, he says, but the Holy Spirit is coming. And then you go down into verse 21. He says, my father and I will love you. And in verse 21, 22, and 23, he says, we will come to you. So he says, I'm going away. The Holy Spirit is coming. And therefore, I'm coming. And Jesus is not saying, oh, I'm not really going away. I'm coming to you in the form of the Holy Spirit. Nor, on the other hand, is he saying, oh, I'm going away, and therefore I'm not coming. He's coming. He is so one with the Holy Spirit that when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, Jesus comes. And yet, he is not so identical to the Holy Spirit that he isn't also already away and therefore in heaven. Jesus is saying, there's not three gods, because there are two one to be three gods. On the other hand, it's not one person in three forms. You know, there he has his father hat, then he has his son hat, then he has his Holy Spirit hat. It's not three gods. They're two one for that. But it's not one God in three forms. They're two three for that. It's one God in three persons. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is a divine person in the middle of your life. Why does that matter? Oh, it matters. Because the Bible talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is to experience incredible divine joy and power. I want that, and I want that for you. So how do you get filled with the Spirit? If you are filled with the Spirit and you think of the Spirit as an impersonal force, you're going to go about seeking that in a different way than if you understand you're being filled with the Spirit and the Spirit is a person. If you try to get filled with an impersonal force, you go about it in a mechanical way. So, for example, Eastern thought conceived God as an impersonal force, and therefore Eastern thought's approach is meditation. But the meditation is always emptying the mind because we're trying to get in touch with the force. And yet whenever you get into the Bible and you see the word meditation comes up a lot, but Christian meditation, biblical meditation, is not emptying the mind of rational thoughts and words. It's filling the mind with the words of God. It's a completely different approach. If you think of the Holy Spirit as an it, you're going to be moving in a mechanical approach. In fact, I really do see an awful lot of Christian teaching on being filled with the Spirit that does sort of, you know, see the Spirit as a kind of electrical charge. And therefore, the way you get filled with the Spirit is by pushing buttons. You pray in certain ways, you do certain things, you refrain from certain things, you push all the right buttons, and you get your life into some kind of environmental condition, and then in it comes. It. No. No. If the Spirit is a person, then to be filled with the Spirit is like being filled with a person. How does that work? I know, for example, that when I was young, sometimes my parents would, if there was a visitor that came into our home for a while, you know, a weekend or something like that, it was a person that my parents really respected. It affected everything. First of all, for some reason, the house looked beautiful. You know, suddenly we made our living space just physically look beautiful. But then secondly, everybody was on their best behavior, and it wasn't a sham, the point is the little things that used to just you know, rub us the wrong way just didn't matter because this person was here. And we hung on this person's words. To be filled with the Spirit is to have your life transformed by an acute consciousness of the glorious person that lives permanently within the walls of your life. I remember once counseling a man 
who had had an affair and it blew up his life. You know, he had cheating on his wife. He told me, you know, if his wife was away and he would bring his mistress into the home, he had to turn over any picture of his wife, any picture of himself and his wife, he had to take down or turn over because neither he nor the mistress could bear even the face, the photograph face of his wife because even the presence of the picture would affect his behavior. Do you know who's living in your, in, you know, in your life? Are you melted by spiritual understandings, by an acute consciousness of the glorious person that's there to change the way in which you live? Just the awareness of it fills you with a sense of his presence and that would bring integrity to your life. There's all kinds of stuff you're doing right now that you're not, you wouldn't do if you were aware of him being there. If you turn the pictures back over and you said, oh my, think about this. And of course, it also means to hang on his words. To be filled with the spirit is very different than to be filled with a force which leads us to the second point. So the Holy Spirit is a personal divine resident of the Christian heart. Secondly, what does the Holy Spirit do? And there are two words here that tell us what he does, and they're great. He is the spirit of truth, verse 17, and he is a counselor. He's a spirit of truth and a counselor. So first, he is the spirit of truth. What does this mean? At one level, we know this, that the Holy Spirit essentially authored the Bible. So, for example, in Second Peter chapter 1, it says this, No prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then here, this is John 6, verse 63, where Jesus says, The words I speak to you are spirit and life. In other words, the words of Jesus that you see in the Bible were produced by the Spirit, and if you embrace them and receive them and understand them, they give you eternal life. So the Holy Spirit, at one level, is the author of the Scripture. In fact, and see, this goes back to this idea of what it means to be filled with the Spirit if the Spirit's a person as opposed to a force. If you go to Ephesians 5.18, the famous passage in which Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, and then he makes a list of the traits of a Spirit-filled life. If you go to another one of his letters, Colossians, and if you go to chapter 3, and you know, Paul wrote these letters to different churches, but he often said similar things, because if you go to Colossians 3.16, it says, be filled with the word. It says, be filled with the word. And then it makes a list of a word-filled life. It says, let the word dwell richly in you, which is the same as be filled with the word. Then it gives a list of traits, and they're the same traits as Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, were the traits of a spirit-filled life. You know what this means? See, to be filled with a person, to be dominated by a person, is to hang on that person's every word. It means to be dominated and saturated by the Scripture. To let it dwell in you richly is not the same thing as knowing it as information. It's to take it in. It's to make it part of yourself. And the Scripture, it's one thing to look at the Scripture and to say, I'm going to learn the facts. It's another thing to let it dwell in you richly. It's another thing to be saturated by it. It's another thing to so take it in that you look at everything else through it. And therefore, to be filled with the Word and to be filled with the Spirit is the same thing because he's a spirit of truth. In fact, he goes on beyond that, though. We already referred to it here. Look in verse 21. Whoever has my commands, that's the Word, and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him, and I will show myself to him. Now, that's interesting. What does this mean? Here are some people who obviously believe in Jesus and who obviously are obeying Jesus and they're reading the Word of God. And Jesus says, I will come and show myself to them. Now, what does that mean? Do they not know who he is? Of course they know who he is. What is that? That is the Holy Spirit taking the words 
and making them life, taking the words and making them power. Here's another place where Paul talks about it. This is actually one of the most important verses in the Bible to me personally. This is Ephesians 3. Paul says, I pray, he's praying for his friends. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he will strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He's talking to Christians, and he says, by the power of the Spirit, I'm praying that through the power of the Spirit, Christ may dwell in your hearts. But Christ is already dwelling in their hearts. They wouldn't be Christians. And then he says, I'm praying that by the power of the Spirit, you may grasp You may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Don't they already know about the love of Christ? Of course, they wouldn't be Christians. He says, but I want you to know this love that surpasses knowledge. What's he talking about? Let me just give you an example. Here's Jonathan Edwards' quiet time notebook. Here's a little journal he wrote. He says, I have at many times had the greatest delight in the Holy Scriptures of any book whatsoever. Oftentimes in reading it, every word seems to touch my heart. I seem often to see so much light exhibited by every sentence and have such a refreshing, ravishing food communicated from these words that I cannot get along in my reading. I am often used to dwell long on one sentence to see the wonders contained in it. The sense I had of divine things as I read the scripture would often of a sudden, as it were, kindle up a sweet burning in my heart, an ardor of my soul that I know not how to express." What's he talking about? It's one thing to read the Scripture. It's another thing to have the Holy Spirit come and reveal Jesus Christ to you in it. It's one thing to know Christ dwells in your heart. It's another thing to sense it. It's one thing to know with your head that sugar is sweet. It's another thing to taste it and have your whole being electrified by it. You not only know it, but you sense it. And that's the job of the Holy Spirit. He is the author not only of objective truth, because he wrote the Bible, but of subjective truth. He makes it live in your life. He makes it vivid and powerful. He makes it life-changing, and that's the first thing the Holy Spirit does. But believe it or not, that's not all, because actually, if this is all he did, he still would be a kind of consultant or somebody you hired just to come in and give you certain things at certain times, but that's not all he is. He's also a counselor. I mean, this is the main point of this whole passage. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. Now, if you go to five or six translations, you're going to have five or six different words. And whenever you see English translations with very different words in every translation, that means that the word that's used here is too rich for one English word to convey, and so the translators are struggling. Some of you may have the old King James Bible, and there's a number of other translations that say, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter. Now, that's a really sweet word, but it does make the Holy Spirit sound like a quilt. So they don't use that much anymore. But even this word, counselor, is this a camp counselor? Is this a marriage counselor? No. Actually, they do know one thing, and this is the reason why we don't have a good word to come out with it. Basically, what the commentators know this word is, this is the word parakaleo or paraklesis. It's actually a very difficult word to translate. Para means not to be in front or behind, but to stand alongside. Kaleo means to declare, to call, to argue, actually. And therefore, the best way to translate this is I'm going to send you another legal advocate. The word gets across the idea that on the one hand, this person is yours. This person stands in your position, represents you. This person is loyal to you, to the end. This is a person who is for you. 
in the strongest sense. But on the other hand, it also means this is a person who argues. This is a person who debates. This is a person who makes a case. This is a person who defends you against your enemies. There's a soft side. That's the sympathy with you. And there's a hard side. Now, why in the world would Jesus Christ say that the Holy Spirit is your legal advocate? What does that mean? And here's what I believe it means. The Holy Spirit's job is to defend you against the enemies here on earth, but especially the enemies inside your own heart. For example, in Romans 8, 15, it says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us the spirit of his son who comes into our heart crying, Abba, Father. You know what that means? Your heart's filled with fears? Fears. And the Holy Spirit comes in and argues and says, no, God loves you. You're his child. Then one verse later, Romans 8, 16, it says the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. The word bears witness is a technical Greek word that means the star witness in court. person bringing testimony, legal testimony in court, that, throw, that basically settles the case. And so what this is saying is, here, your heart's filled with doubts. And in comes the Holy Spirit and says, no, there's no reason to doubt. You are his. You are loved. Or there's this great spot in uh, Hebrews 12 which is all about suffering. And in Hebrews 12, it says, have you forgotten the word of exhortation that argues with you? That's what the Greek word means, as children. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, for he disciplines those he loves. The Hebrews writer is quoting Proverbs 3, and he's saying that the job of the Holy Scripture is to argue with you when you're cast down. Suffering has happened to you. Bad things have happened to you. And you feel like, oh, I'm being abandoned. No, according to the book of Hebrews. He says, the scripture argues with you. How? As children. The scripture argues and says, no, you are his child. He has not abandoned you. Good fathers often put their children through paces. And that's what's happening to you right now. Now, what does all this mean? You know, there's a place in 1 John 3.20 where it says, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit's job to argue. Our hearts do not like the idea of grace. We don't really like the gospel, the idea that we're saved by grace. We want to earn it. It puts us in control. And because our hearts have got that part there, we're constantly being buffeted by fears, we're by doubts. When bad things happen, we say, no, no, he's abandoned us. I'm not good enough. He can't possibly love me. And the Holy Spirit comes in and argues. He makes the case. He takes the gospel and pounds you until you start to relax. But it's not just that the Holy Spirit defends us against accusation. He also defends us against temptation. In James chapter 4, there's this strange spot where James first says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? And then it says, Don't you realize that the Spirit of God within you envies you? Sometimes they translate it, lusts unto envy. They don't know how to translate it. You know what it's saying? (laughs) It's saying, don't you realize that when you start to let the world take you away from God, that the Holy Spirit within you longs for your love. The Holy Spirit sees us giving our heart to money or giving our heart to fame or giving our heart to sex or giving our heart to power instead of to God. And then the Holy Spirit, when it sees our hearts tempting us away from God, knowing this is going to destroy us, the Holy Spirit acts the way a loving friend acts toward an addict. But this is what we've got when we have the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is a friend. This is a counselor. This is a legal advocate. This is someone who will not let you kill yourself. He's a glorious person. And Paul says in Philippians 1, the good work God began in you, he will bring to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. He's a glorious person, this Holy Spirit, and he will not stop until you become the glorious person you should be. And he's not going to let you go. This is a friend whose love has teeth in it. This is a friend who's utterly for you, which means sometimes he's against you for you. He said, I should have thought twice about inviting this person into my life. 
No. I just want you to think about the implications. And therefore, yes, it's the job of the Holy Spirit to give you Scripture. And then the job of the Holy Spirit to make that Scripture real and vibrant and powerful in your life. But he's not simply doing it, you know, just to give you spiritual experiences. He's come into your life and he's utterly committed to bringing the good work God began with you at the new birth to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And he's not going to let you go. He's a permanent legal advocate. He's a permanent friend who's willing to do interventions on you all the time. He's for you, para. But he sometimes can be against you for you. That's the wonder of having the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, lastly, very importantly, how can you be sure that you're receiving the benefits that the Holy Spirit can offer you? And I think there's two answers in this text. And here's the first thing. The key to the power of the Holy Spirit operating in your life and making you what you should be and can be is understanding the first advocate. See, when Jesus says, I'm going to send you another counselor, he's talking about himself. Who's the first counselor? Him, he, he's the first counselor. And this word parakaleo, legal advocate, is used of Jesus too. By the same author, John, not in the book of John, but in the first epistle of John, where he says this. Now, this is the New International Translation. He says, I write this to you. This is 1 John 2, 1. I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, that's how the New International Version renders it. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Actually, it just says, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a parakaleo. We have an advocate with the Father. And when the Bible says that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, here's what the Bible's assuming. Number one, it assumes that there is a bar of justice. There is a court before which all of us stand accused, that we're condemned. In my 35 years of pastoral work, I've seen lots and lots of people who try desperately to get out from under this idea that they're moral failures, this idea that they're condemned. You decide what is right or wrong for you. For a number of years, you say, see, I don't have to feel guilty. I decide what is right or wrong for me. Until you realize there's not a single person on the face of the earth that even lives up to the standards that you have decided are right or wrong and the standards that you apply to everybody else. And I don't care what happens. It could be you're successful in the beginning of your life and then realize as life goes on that you've neglected your relationships and now you're lonely. Or you're unsuccessful early in life and you feel like a failure because of that. Or you just suffering hits you and whenever suffering hits you, you realize it forces you to admit your moral flaws. Everybody in the end has a sense that they're condemned. Everybody knows they're a moral failure. It sleeps very deep, this sense, in people for a long time and it might be sleeping deep in you. But there is a bar of justice, there is a court before which we all stand accused. Point one. Point two, the second thing that this passage assumes is that when you believe in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ stands before that court of justice representing you, interceding for you, making his case for you. Now, when I was a new Christian, I read that spot. There's a place in Romans 8 where it says, Jesus Christ ever lives to intercede. It's in Hebrews 7. It's in Romans 8, where it says, Jesus Christ makes intercession for us before the Father. And that was kind of a comfort for me. In my mind, what it meant was, every time I sinned, Jesus walked up and said, don't abandon Tim. You know, be merciful. I know he promised not to do that anymore, and he did it anymore, but let's give him one more chance. I guess I thought that's what he was doing. And that wasn't very comforting to me, because, you know, I always wonder, how long can Jesus keep that up? You know, when is he finally going to say, I'm not going to the Father one more time for this guy? It didn't comfort me until I read a sermon outline by a man named Charles Hodge, who was a 
one of the professors at Princeton Theological Seminary in the 19th century. Like He gave a chapel talk on Jesus Christ as the advocate. And something that changed my life long ago, he says, you know what? Jesus Christ is your advocate. He is your legal representative before the court. And one of the things you have to realize, he's not up there just pleading for mercy. That is not what a legal advocate does. A legal advocate makes a case, and he makes a case based on the law. And he's up there securing your status as not being condemned because of the law. He's not up there pleading for mercy. He's making a case. And then this is what Charles Hodge says is something like what we think the Bible is trying to convey when it talks about Jesus as our legal advocate. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, Father, you are just, and sin demands payment. And this brother or sister of mine has sinned, and his sin must be paid for. But Father, here's the payment. Look at my broken body. Look at my poured out blood. I have paid for it, and it would be unjust to get two payments for the same sin. I've paid for it, and therefore, I'm not just pleading for mercy. I demand acquittal for my brother because I have paid for his sin, and therefore, he cannot pay for his sin, and therefore, there cannot be any condemnation for him. It's justice that he's pleading for. See, that's what Charles Hodge was saying. See, I realize all other religions sort of see salvation as the scales, you know, the justice scales. And all I thought was that the moral law of God, the divine justice, was on one side of the scale, and I had to put in a ton of good works on the other side just so it didn't kill me. See, the justice of God was against me. You better be good. You better be good. And I had to, you know, push up everything I possibly could out of my own life, all the good deeds and all the prayers and going to church and everything. Otherwise, I was cooked. And I realized that when you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and when he becomes your legal advocate, it means the justice of God is on your side. It would be unjust for God to take two payments for the same sin, and your sins have been paid for. And therefore, the very justice of God, the omnipotent, infallible, infinite justice of God demands that there is no condemnation for you. Now, if we've got that advocate up there doing that, what is the Holy Spirit doing down here? The Holy Spirit is our advocate on earth. Jesus Christ is our advocate in heaven. What the Holy Spirit is doing is he's taking the advocacy in heaven and applying it here on earth against the enemies in your own heart. He's pounding into you. He's dealing with your temptations. He's dealing with your pride. He's dealing with your fears. He's dealing with your accusations. And he's saying, look at what Jesus has done. The Holy Spirit, though, is not an advocate that points to himself. J.I. Packer, it's in John chapter 16 where it actually says, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will speak of me. He will glorify me. He will not speak of himself. He will speak of me. And J.I. Packer, who is a, an Anglican minister, one day was, he was preaching a sermon on the Holy Spirit and he was looking for a good illustration on the way to preach. He saw a floodlight. It was kind of dark at night. And he saw a floodlight lighting up an old building, which in the daytime didn't look very good, but at night looked beautiful. And he suddenly realized he couldn't even tell where the floodlight was. He says, I couldn't even tell, because the job of the floodlight is not to call attention to itself. The job of the floodlight is to throw into relief the beauty and the magnificence of the thing that is flooding. And he says, that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is not to say, look at me, get my power, get my joy. The Holy Spirit's job is to say, look at Jesus, look at the beauty of what he's done, look at his advocacy for you. Do you not see that there's no danger, there is no failure, there is no accusation, there is nothing that can overturn you, that can cast you down. Nothing. He's an advocate on earth, pointing to our advocate in heaven, making the work of the advocate in heaven so beautiful to your life that it changes it. Two things. Number one, here's two ways I would like you to change your life on the basis of what I've already said. Would you please notice the magnificence of divine selflessness? The magnificence of divine selflessness. Here's Jesus Christ emptying himself of his glory 
in order to become a servant and die on the cross for our sins. And now here's the Holy Spirit, not speaking of his own glory, but glorifying Jesus. There must be something deep in the heart of God that is other-oriented. There's a selflessness in God. There's something in God that says, my life for yours. There's something in God that says, I'm here to serve you. Here's Jesus emptying himself of his glory. Here's the Holy Spirit only showing us Jesus' glory. Are you always promoting yourself? Are you always upset because people aren't giving you your due? Do you feel like you're not getting credit? Do you find yourself always getting insulted? How dare people talk to me like that or be about me like that? Are you doing what a lot of New Yorkers are doing, spending all their time just trying to get up the ladder and basically only dealing with people if they serve you, serve your interests, help you with your agenda? If you want to be like the divine person who comes and lives in the heart of a Christian, you have to be a person who is characterized by the magnificence of divine selflessness. Get rid of your pride. Be like the one who lives within you. But here's the second thing. Are you, on the other hand, do you feel like an imposter? Are you struggling with rejection? Are some of you struggling an awful lot? Do you feel like a failure in many ways? Are you afraid to have any of the people around you realize how much you lack confidence? How much you right now almost loathe yourself? You need an advocate. And you got one in heaven. You got one on earth. You really got everything you need. Avail yourself of him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for sending another counselor into our lives. Oh, how we do thank you for that. And we pray that you would help us to be filled with the Spirit. We pray that you would help us to receive his counseling. We pray that you would help us to uh, cooperate with him as he advocates for us. And we ask that you would help us to do this as an entire church so that we truly would be a Spirit-filled church. The world will notice, and you'll be grateful. You'll be glad for us. You'll be, we'll be grateful to you, and you'll be glorified in us. And that's what we want. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Till on that cross 
program called The Good News of the Gospel. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. My name is Young Yim Winston. You are listening to The Good News of the Gospel. Hello, everyone. My name is Brian Winston. Today, we're going to talk about the meaning of Jesus' death who died as the Passover lamb. Do you mean his uh, resurrection? Yes, his resurrection. However, there aren't many who can give a clear explanation of his resurrection, although the meaning is simple. What do you think was the reason for Jesus' resurrection? Because God resurrected Jesus? That's an obvious answer. Jesus resurrected because God resurrected him. 
But why did he do that? That is to save us. Correct. But that's a superficial answer. The purpose of our program, the good news of the gospel, is to straighten out the concept of the gospel. I'm asking you this question so that we can clearly understand the concept of the gospel. From the beginning of the program, we looked into questions like, why did God begin his creation? Why did man sin? How did death enter the earth? What is God's righteousness? How must God carry his righteousness for sin? And then we studied the reason behind Jesus' death. Yes, we did. That's why we have to learn why Jesus resurrected. As we were talking about the concept of God's righteousness, sin and redemption, we have been using the idea of negative and positive. Yes, we understood that what became negative because of sin was made back to the original condition of zero by adding positive through righteousness. The first man, Adam, was given a choice between obedience and disobedience good and evil, righteousness and sin, and he chose evil and sin. And what happened as a result? As a result of sin, death entered the world. Yes, death was upon man. Is it justice for a man to die? It is because a man died as a result of his sin. Correct. It was the fulfillment of justice. There was no other solution because that's how justice works. However, how about the second Adam, who was Jesus? Did he commit any sins? No, we learn that Jesus can never sin. Yes, not only did Jesus not sin, but he can't sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, He did not know sin, but why did this man who did not know or commit sin die? Is this righteousness or not? I haven't thought that way. It is not right for Jesus, who was without sin, to die. It was not just. Yes, righteousness was broken when man without sin was judged and killed. Then what should the righteous God have done? Because it was unjust for righteous Jesus to die. God brought Jesus back to life? Yes, that's right. The God of justice resurrecting Jesus is the natural consequence of his character. We must remember this concept. It is not just that Jesus died. So the God of righteousness has corrected justice by raising Jesus. Now I know for sure why Jesus was resurrected. I wonder though how God would answer Satan if he accused God of resurrecting Jesus. That's an interesting image. Of course, Satan is an accuser, and it's possible that he could do so. So what was your answer to his accusation? I could never come up with an answer. So I thought he would say something along the lines of, Well, I am God, and it is my decision. Because our God is God, no one can complain about anything he does. But if we know God's character... We know that he never goes against an order. Yes, going against an order is a character of evil and sin. Right. Shall we go over it again? The resurrection of Jesus was to accomplish justice by bringing back righteousness. It is just for a sinner to die as his own punishment 
Likewise, a man without sin should receive an eternal life as his reward. Now let us think, the descendants of the first man, Adam, were destined to die. Let us read Romans chapter 5, verse 12 again. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and through that, death spread to everyone. Now let us read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 22. Would you please read this for us? For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So how is this verse related to Romans chapter 5? Just like everyone die in Adam, everyone is made alive in the Christ. Last time, we looked into how we, as humans, were born under the condition of spiritual death and that we will eventually experience physical death. Yet, we can live again, meaning that we can resurrect. How is this possible? Through Jesus Christ? Yes, through Jesus. But I'm asking you how through Jesus. We are born as descendants of Adam. That's why we all will die. Then how can we live? We have to come to Jesus. Yes, we ought to be born again through Jesus. Didn't we talk about how Jesus had told Nicodemus about being born again in the book of John? Let us read that passage again. Let's take turns reading from John chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is a flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is a spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. We studied about this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus at one of the heart and soul ministry programs called Anacrino. And I want to point out one thing. We often interpret and understand the expression of being born of water and the Holy Spirit as being baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit. But in the program Anacrino, we shared how the Jewish rabbis said being born of water is being born in the flesh. So you are saying that being born with water is the Jewish expression of a being born in the flesh? Yes, that's right. So this is what Jesus meant. Nicodemus, I'm telling you the truth. If a man is born with only water and not with a spirit, then he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For what is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is the Spirit. Therefore, you have to be born again. Now let us continue to read from John chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, 
the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of a Man be lifted up. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Jesus is telling us there is no one besides who came down from heaven that can go up to heaven. It means that no one is qualified to go up to heaven besides Jesus. Then why did Jesus come down from heaven? Isn't the answer given with the following verse? Just as Moses lifted up a serpent, Jesus came to be lifted up on the cross. And the very reason for Jesus coming on earth was to give eternal life to everyone who believed. That is correct. God sent His Son to the earth as the second Adam to give lives to those who are born again in Him. And the next verse is the most popular verse of all, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. God gave us the opportunity to be born again through Jesus because He loved those who are born into death, who are descendants of the first man. So how can you be reborn? Just like Jesus told Nicodemus, we have to be born in the Spirit. That's right. Every one of us is born as descendants of Adam, a child of flesh. And in order to receive life, we have to be born again. We have to be born again as descendants of Jesus. How can this happen? Only through the Holy Spirit. The beginning of being born again is done by accepting Jesus as your Savior, and this happens with the work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. So confessing Jesus as Lord is possible only through the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, this is the beginning of being born again. I also briefly mentioned this last time that individuals who are born again by the Holy Spirit, in other words, the sinful bodies born through the first man, Adam, are dead and born again as righteous in Christ, are no longer slaves of sin, but are given the authority to rule over sin. So, the condition which could not help but to sin changed to condition of being able to not sin. Yes, that is why the Bible mentions that those who are born again are to denounce the past self. Our old selves are dead with Christ, and we become the new creation reborn in Him. Now, shall we find the proof from the Bible? First, would you please read Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12? And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. Yes, Him in verse 11 refers to Jesus. Therefore, those who believe in Jesus Christ were removed of the body of the flesh by circumcision. What is the circumcision? 
Circumcision is to cut off. Wouldn't it mean cutting off our sinful body? And by that, our sinful bodies are buried in the ground with the Christ. These things will happen to us in reality by believing in God's righteousness of raising back Jesus, who was sinless from the dead. We will also be born again in him and raised back to life. Then what should we do, who are dead with Christ and who receive grace of being born again through Christ? Let's continue to read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the son of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of one who created him. Colossians chapter 3 explains to us what we have been talking about today. We have been living in immorality, denial, desire, lust, and greed, but since we are dead with Christ and born again, we have set our eyes to heaven and live according to what belongs to the kingdom of God and the Spirit rather than what belongs to the earth. So, just like what the Bible tells us that we should live as new being because we put on the new self. Yes, the Bible tells us clearly how we should live as being born again in Christ. And what will be the reason if we do not? Since the Bible does not tell lies, it is because the individual is not born again in Christ, or the individual still does not understand how to live as born-again Christians. Just as 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 3 says, No one can confess Jesus as the Lord without the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we have to believe the fact that it was the work of the Holy Spirit within us when we confessed Jesus as our Lord. If an individual is born again in a different family, the person learns how to live under his or her new family's rules. But the problem is that the person is not willing to learn or live according to the new family rules. We are born again in a new family. We need to think we took on a new last name. We can no longer live according to our old habits, but to live according to the rule of our new father and family. That is why we must continue to read the Word of God and know the character of the Father and His will. As I listen, I understand that there should be a change within each individual. 
I simply thought by believing in Jesus, we all go to heaven. But there should be complete change of an individual's identity. I feel I should learn the rules of the kingdom of heaven so that I can live as a new being. For today's goodness of the gospel, we talk about being born again. I hope that you will reflect and continue to think the meaning of what being born again is for the rest of this week and live as a new being. I hope so as well. The reason we Christians are being accused by the world is probably because we do not live as born-again Christians. There are lists of characteristics of those who are not born again in Colossians chapter 3. Let us start by removing those within us. This concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again next week. Goodbye, everyone.
seeing how much faith God had in Job through the tests that Satan put him through, I thought about how it would have been if I was going through Satan's tests. I thought about what kind of tests Satan would have me go through to make me curse God. It could be a test about health or even material possessions. For any of us, it could be our children or even a significant other. For others, it could be about success or honor. What is important to each one of you? We must understand what it is that Satan can use to test us. This is because it is that which can hold us back from growing in faith. God wants all of us to win over this temptation. He wants us to grow and mature as Christians this way. Now, let's think of it another way. If we're hit with a hardship in life today, then we can look at it that God has enough confidence in us to let us go through this hardship, just like he permitted all the hardships that happened to Job. God may have the confidence in us that we will stay faithful in him through hardships just like Job did. Are any of you currently going through turmoil or hardships in life? 
Are you questioning why you are going through all this right now? It could be a health problem that came out of nowhere, having a child with disabilities, heartache over burying a loved one, going through a constant family problem that will just not go away, or someone that is making your life very difficult. Are any of you going through these troubles today? None of us truly know why we must go through these kinds of troubles in life. But we all know that even though we are not sure about the reasons why these things happen, they cannot happen without permission from God. Even though it is tough right now, God will use these hardships to make us grow and mature as children of God, to make us become like His Son, Jesus Christ. God will make all this possible. God never fails in anything He does. God will never give up on us because He bought us with the blood of His only Son, Jesus. I hope that all of us can praise God through any hardships that we may face. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to see all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless.
sing I will rest I will rest in your promises my confidence is your faithfulness I will 